Oh, goodness, that was quick. Okay, well, we were looking at uh, the Corinthians, weren't we? And just for a moment to look at the city of Corinth. Corinth was a busy commercial city in ancient Greece, and it was strategically located on the narrow strip of land connecting the peninsula to the mainland. It was a cosmopolitan center of about 500,000 people. It was a center of idolatry with numerous pagan temples dedicated to the worship of Greek and Roman gods and the infamous temple of Aphrodite, who otherwise known as Astarte, uh, you know, the old Asherah, all those, same name, same person, same spot on the dial, a fertility goddess, had a poisonous effect on the city's culture and morals. You may or may not know that that's where we get our name Easter from. It's actually the feast of Astarte. Good, isn't it? But that doesn't matter, does it? We get the name Easter from Astarte. Um, it was because everything was merged, R Rome bought into Christianity. Everything, all their pagan ceremonies became our Christian ones. Um, so we Christianized it. Um, but nevertheless, Jesus died and rose again, so we can use it. But that's what the, that's what the word Easter comes as why we have bunnies, fertility, eggs, fertility. It's all about fertility. It's a fertility rite. There we go. And Christmas, well, there's another one. But never mind. Doesn't matter, does it? I can eat food offered to idols. I like hot cross buns. Hot cross buns. Tea for Tammuz, yes. Tea for Tammuz. You see it in Ezekiel, I think it is. Have you seen what they're doing, son of man? The, the, the women are preparing cakes for the queen of heaven. And they put a tea on the top, which was Tammuz, which was supposedly Aphrodite's or Astarte's offspring, who was eternal. The whole complete um, counterfeit of what Jesus did. So the tea or the cross on the top of the hot cross bun are cakes to the Queen of Heaven. But I can eat food offered to idols. I like hot cross buns. But we just need to know where we get these things from, don't we? And Christmas is the feast of Bacchus and Saturnalia which is the time of orgy, drinking, licentiousness, and what happens at Christmas, orgy, drinking, licentiousness. That's why it, it, you get the spirit abroad at Christmas time um, that is very, very difficult to resist. Bye, 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 spend, 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 drink, 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 and the rest of it that goes with it. it is a, there is a spirit abroad because of the, of the time of the year that it is. But, uh, that's altogether something else. But uh, it's just interesting to know. So this infamous temple of Aphrodite, a fertility goddess, had a poisonous effect on the city's culture and morals. Temple prostitution was normal, and the term to be Corinthianized meant to be sexually debauched or immoral and un unrestrainedly and um, immorally self-indulgent. So Paul addresses these young Christians. You'll read the book of Corinthians with a different viewpoint when you see why, who he was talking to. He says, and such were some of you. Well, they came out of temple prostitution. Uh, and the whole thing is that these are young Christians, washed and sanctified, but still not quite completely left behind the stuff that they were indulging in before. So Paul addresses these young Christians who have just come out of such an environment and are trying to live in a different way. 
and the sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, which is what we read just now, are well known in the ancient world. And he warns them strongly. If they continue living in the way they'd been before they became Christians, they will forfeit their inheritance. He's not saying they will lose their salvation. He's saying no share in the kingdom inheritance which God the Father promises. Matthew 25, 34 says, Come thou, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Everything that we do in this life is storing up for ourselves something in the, in the next life, in eternal life. And we don't come into ruling and reigning automatically. We come into that by making the right choices, the right decisions. When God challenges us with something and we say, yes, Lord, we don't run away from it. We say, yes, we are building with gold, silver and precious jewels. We're not building with wood, hay and stubble. But that's another thing too. So Paul cites two activities that need further comment. Homosexual offenders, some versions say effeminate and sodomites. As we've seen, this first word is catamites, that's homosexual offenders, and indicates a young man who is offering himself to men for the purpose of indecent sexual acts, prostitution in other words. Male prostitution is the Greek word malakos, M-A-L-A-K-O-S, which means soft or effeminate. And it was a term in Greek culture that meant an effeminate male. Effeminate in the sense that it spoke of the male, again, who was the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Often the passive partner of the homosexual act was a paid male prostitute. And we know from Greek literature that these young men, often teenagers, would frequently dress up as females and sell their services to older men. We would call that transvestitism right now. So Paul is distinctly referring to male prostitution. We also know that one of the highly esteemed relationships in Greco-Roman culture was that of an older man with a young male as his companion. The older would lead the younger into philosophy, wisdom, sophisticated living, and also engage in a homosexual relationship with him. The second term, homosexual offenders in the NIV, sodomites in the New King James, is the same term used in a parallel list of sinners that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. 1 Timothy 1.10. The term in the NIV is perverts. And in the Greek, it is arsen coitus, which is A-R-S-E-N-K-O-I-T-U-S. This is a compound of two words, male and intercourse. And in the Greek of Paul's day, it was a vulgar term for sexual intercourse. It was not used in Greek literature because it was a street term. And Paul uses this vulgarity to drive home his point. He's actually saying, what you're doing is crude and out of order. And the term used refers to the active partner in the homosexual partnership. As we've already seen, in ancient society, gender was not an issue in sexual relations. Who was going to be active and who was going to be passive was defined because the act was seen as what you did to someone, not what you did with someone. And the Bible and Judaism contrast, in contrast, defined the act as what you do with someone. 
and that gender and covenant are morally significant. And as you know, in Corinthians, Paul says that the wife's body is for the husband and the husband's body is for the wife. So it's not there for you to please yourself, it's for you to give yourself to, the, to your husband or your wife. Incidentally, uh, female homosexuality was not unknown to the Greeks. The city of Lesbos, from where we get our word lesbian, was known in the ancient world for its female homosexuality. It's clear that Paul, like Jesus, shared in the ancient and ongoing Jewish abhorrence of so homosexuality. So what are we to say to all these things? We've talked about how the law and the commandments were an exception to the philosophies and practices of the ancient world. Because what we call homosexuality, sexual acts between men, were not only universally practiced, but were socially acceptable. In the ancient world, the concept of homosexuality didn't exist. They simply understood the concept of an active or passive partner, whether it be male, female, or whatever. We've discovered that what we call homosexuality was not only widespread in its practice, but also idealized in their philosophies, and this is probably quite widely still the case. We've seen that the ancient religions with their gods and goddesses were totally sexual in orientation. The Bible, however, does not present our God as sexual. He has no consort. He creates, orders, and sustains the world by his word. The Bible sanctifies sexuality by putting limits and controls on it, particularly by prohibiting all non-marital sexual acts and declaring the union be to be between one man and one woman, which by definition excludes homosexuality, incest, bestiality, and any other permutation. The heterosexual marital union was not only the basis of personal fulfillment, but for the furtherance of society itself. In the process of channeling the sex drive, the Bible elevates both the status and significance of sexuality, love, women, marriage, and the family. As I said, one of the most beautiful themes which is developed through the Bible is the bride-bridegroom relationship, especially as it relates to God and his people. We wouldn't know anything of the beauty or depth of this kind of closeness if God hadn't created us to experience it. God himself teaches that the marriage relationship between one man and one woman is sacred because it mirrors our relationship with him. He desires an intimate relationship with us and in using the word know, that they might know me, I think that's John 17:3. this is eternal life that they might know me and Jesus Christ or know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's using the term of intimacy described in the sexual union between a man and his wife. He desires that we be open and honest with him and invites us to come close to him in an intimate relationship. I can always tell when I'm talking to people how close they are to Jesus or close they are to the Lord by the very way that they talk. Um, someone will use the term God all the time. Others will use the term Father. Others will say Jesus. But most often when there's a, quite a distance in the relationship, it's God. Yeah, it's quite interesting because you can hear 
from the way that people talk, how intimate their relationship is with him. Paul in both Romans and Timothy conclude that homosexual acts are abominations. A tragic error with tremendous consequences, both in this life and the next. He tells us this behaviour ends in self-destruction. A depraved mind with inflamed and compulsive passions and a perversion that is its own penalty. I think that is so awful. It's its own penalty. And as much as we don't want to admit it, the lake of fire is real. I remember a, an elderly um, a lady whose husband was a pastor, Mrs. Granger, she used to be at Paddock Wood Christian Fellowship, and she was deaf. <laughs> right in the middle of the service, you'd hear her. Oh, dear Lord, we do thank you for your presence here with us today. It's just so lovely to be in your presence, Jesus. And she'd obviously go, she was deaf, she couldn't hear what else was going on. And she'd go off. But uh, her husband um, was dying, and uh, as I understand it, he urgently wanted to speak to her because the Lord had shown him the lake of fire. It held him out over the lake of fire to show him what it was and that it was real and he'd said he said to her preach the gospel preach the gospel you know it's real it's real it's real we don't want to thump that at people because that's not the way that god's doing it in these days he's drawing by love but if push comes to shove we have a duty to tell them that you are storing up something for yourself that is just unspeakable it is just unspeakable So, so how then should we respond? What about those who have a heart for God but have this insistent inclination to engage in homosexual activity? We surely need to bring them to the knowledge that this behavior must be repented of. That's a change of heart and mind. They must turn by God's grace from this course of action. I have actually seen and ministered to someone who um, had this problem. Um, and the root of the man's problem was, and why he had such a compulsion to go into a homosexual relationship, was he, as he put it, needed to feel a man's arms around him. And the root of that, of course, was he had no proper fathering. And he actually needed that strength of hug from a man. Uh, and that was all he needed. But in order to get it, he had to prostitute himself, if you see what I mean. Not in the terms that he was a prostitute, but he had to allow himself to be used in that way in order to get that deep need met. And we unpicked it and unpicked it until finally um, the Lord just did the whole thing and um, he's normally happily married with two children. I've also ministered to girls with um, lesbian tendencies. Uh, and this can be one of two things. Sometimes it is that the, that the mother has actually um, uh, betrayed the child in some way, like um, mum's a single mum and the child spends a lot of time with mum and the child maybe even shares mum's bed sometimes and then suddenly there's a man comes on the scene and she gets chucked out. 
and so she has a, a aversion for men and is not satisfied because she didn't get what she felt she needed from her mum so she will turn to women so if we press in enough there's always a key there somewhere to this stuff it's hard but it the church has actually got to recognize it's there because if we don't they're not going to get any help so it's not a sin biblically to have a homosexual homosexual inclination any more than it's a sin to have a heterosexual one it's the act that is the sin and we must never lose respect for the person we are called to demonstrate both in word and deed God's love for the sinner not the sin we are to speak the truth but always in love we're to reject all acts of violence towards homosexuals, both verbal and physical. We're to give up homosexual jokes and all other names that we're prone to use and not insult them. The church should be a place where we speak the truth in love. We must confront, but we need to be loving in our opposition to their lifestyle. The church should be a place of security and safety for those who are struggling with homosexual tendencies a place where they can receive prayerful support and acceptance. We're all sinners working out our salvation. Sometimes love has to be tough. It has to move beyond sympathy. We must move in Christ-like opposition to the diseased mindset that subjects people to this deviant behavior. All healing and salvation begin at the cross and proceed from it. Homosexuality is not an identity. Oh, I'm a homosexual. No, you're not. That is your inclination. You're a man. We're not determined by our biology. It's like saying if someone's carrying a guitar, I'm a guitarist. No, you're not. Put your guitar down. You're a person. You're a son of God. Separate the person from <laughs> what they're hanging on to that they are actually getting their identity from. So it's an inclination. We're not determined by our biology. We are created in the image of God and he is calling us to be recreated and conformed to the image of his son. And it's that process uh, that is, can be spelt P-A-I-N, if you will. What about the person who says, I was born like this? The evidence for a genetic predisposition to homosexuality is tenuous at best and far from an established fact. The truth of the matter is we've all been given in our very essence as human beings an inclination to do evil. We've got it, but it doesn't mean that we have to give in to it. I mean, we've seen about the history of, of all these things, where it sprung from, and how actually it's not genetic at all. It's an inclination to do evil that has just com been compounded and compounded throughout the generations. We're shaped by our past. Problems with mothering and fathering or lack of it can also be a contributing factor to the term which causes a desire for the same sex relationship. It isn't a simple problem, but the solution is simple. Jesus is the answer to every human need. Someone once said he is bearing this dying world in his arms as a mother her sick child. And that's about the size of it. I think that's a lovely way to put it. It's grace from first to last. 
Repentance will always bring forgiveness. God is not a spoil sport. He's a loving, caring Father who desires that all men shall be saved. No one goes to the lake of fire for eternity but by their own choice. It's not their sin that puts them there. The penalty for sin has been paid. It's their refusal to accept God's free gift of pardon through his only son, Jesus Christ, which commits them to separation from him for eternity. We are the product of the fall, but Jesus came to transform us. He didn't come to confirm what the first Adam did, but to undo what he did and make a new person in Jesus. He can and he will if we will allow him. It's our responsibility to live up to the high calling in Christ, to bear witness to a different reality, a different set of standards to the world in which we live. And finally, uh, the book of Philippians, which I spent about 18 months teaching at house group on Monday nights, didn't I? We're out of it now. 2, Philippians 2. My Bible ought to fall open at it. 12 to 16. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It comes a difficult one. Ever wished you'd had a bit of eraser? Do all things without murmuring and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Amen. May God add his blessing, as they say in the Anglican Church, to his precious word. Thank you for listening. Right, okay.